Welcome to Kindred Media, a nonprofit initiative of Kindred World. Kindred has gathered thought leaders, researchers, and activists exploring the new story of the human family for over 15 years. Visit our website for our new story features, interviews, podcasts, and video collections at www.kindredmedia.org. Okay, well, welcome, Darsha, and welcome, Four Arrows. And I cannot wait to dive into this amazing, rich book with you. Thank you so much for all the work you have put into putting it together, bringing it to us, and uh, just to help our listeners understand what they're going to find when they open the book. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what, what brought it together? What prompted this book? So Darcy, you want me to, to start on that? Uh, you know, I, I wrote a book in 1998 called Primal Awareness uh, based on uh, the experience that I had with the Raramari people of Mexico, the Cimarron people, and a near-death experience. Uh, I quit everything that I was doing and uh, had a transformation and went back and got my second doctorate in uh, indigenous worldview and tried to understand uh, my experience. Um, so I've been working on indigenous worldview, a concept that many people uh, uh, are starting to grasp now, but it's a European uh, construct, you know, Wolfenstein. And, and I, I didn't really like the idea of seeing the world because I felt the indigenous worldview was about being in the world. And yet, uh, as I start to look at the work of, of people like uh, Robert Redfield out of the University of Chicago, who really kind of one of the fathers of social anthropology, they call him, uh, put worldview on the map. Originally, he said there were only three. There was the Eastern, the Western, and the primitive. And later, he said, nah, the Eastern has been subsumed by the materialism and the anthropocentrism of the Western. So he says there's really only two now. And one of them is, uh, I use the word indigenous. Uh, in my first book, I used primal. Um, he says that it was the greatest tragedy in human history that the, that the dominant worldview, which he called the metropolitan worldview, had taken over. And so that, this idea of worldview, uh, when Darcy and I got together uh, and we put on, she put on the, the amazing conference at the University of Notre Dame, uh, we began to start talking uh, about this. We're using, no one's using this as a baseline, you know, and without it, we're gonna continue digging ourselves deeper. Um, and uh, so I wrote a little monograph called uh, Sitting Bull's Words for a World in Crisis uh, using his worldview, but wanted to expand that. And I knew it could, I couldn't just present because I wanted to use quotes of indigenous people, like I used quotes for Sitting Bull, I knew that I had to have a partner that would be able to dialogue an understanding of, of the indigenous speeches that I had sought out to look at. And there was nobody better uh, in, in the world than, than Darsha. And when I uh, offered uh, you know, her the opportunity to do this with me, she, she said, yeah, let's do it. And, and the rest is history, as they say. So Darsha, from your perspective, um, 
what is this what does this have to do with the evolved nest and our neurobiology has everything to do with it uh, our human heritage is complex and we kind of forgot a lot of it and we've gone off the rail off the trail off the pathway of wellness uh, promotion uh, is what we're calling it these days and the evolved nest is part of that uh, wellness pathway but the the sorry the indigenous worldview is what's uh just fundamental it's the air you breathe when you provide the evolved nest in its original capacity to enhance the well-being of individuals and communities so we can you know in a way the, the indigenous or kinship worldview that we're talking about is is sort of a delocalized the air you breathe uh and it just we have to distinguish that from traditional ecological knowledge or place-based knowledge that every native people has which is also very very important for living sustainably and well and promoting health and wellness we're talking about the level of of kind of cosmology of how you act and how you perceive humans and nature and spirituality and all that aspect, uh, all those aspects. And they all contribute then to the evolved nest and, and the capacity to actually uh, maintain, to grow and maintain the kinship worldview starts in that evolved nest. That's the bottom up aspect of, of growing the kinship worldview. Four Arrows, though, has come up with procedures or methods to grow that kinship worldview top down. So I want to distinguish really quickly because I don't want anyone to be left behind. The terms we're using, and, and Four Arrows just explained the worldview, but the indigenous worldview and the primal worldview and then the, uh, the location-based versus uh, you know, so, and you and I have talked about this before, Darsha, um, some people will hear the word or phrase indigenous and indigenous worldview and say, this doesn't have anything to do with me. So, so can we kind of clarify what we're talking about? And then, uh, as you and I have talked about in the past, um, the place-based piece is still dependent upon a primal uh, worldview that comes from the evolved nest being met. Um, so just kind of, because I don't want anybody to get left behind in terminology. Well, I'll let the four arrows speak to this mostly, but let me just say that the evolved nest is, is a generic kind of uh, way of raising human beings because we're born so immature that so much is shaped, our humanity is shaped after we're born, right? So it's not like you're born and then you're a human. No, there's so much to grow yet. And the evolved nest provides that. It's all over the world. It's common. It's Part of our heritage just uh, diminished in the last few hundred years in particular. But in terms of the uh, place-based uh, indigenous knowledge versus the worldview, the indigenous worldview or the kinship worldview, the primal worldview, however you want to talk about it, I'll hand this over to Four Arrows <laughs> to say more. Well, it's the perfect question to ask early on in our conversation because certainly when one hears indigenous worldview, uh, whatever side of the uh, anti-Indian fence you are on, uh, pro or anti, you think, well, this belongs to indigenous people and it doesn't have anything to do with me, just like you said, Lisa. Um, 
The indigenous worldview relates to people who are indigenous to planet Earth, and therefore everyone owns it. Uh, Fool's Crow said in the 1800s that anyone that thinks that someone owns the medicine that we're talking about doesn't know the medicine. Um, and so uh, it doesn't belong to a group of people. In fact, unfortunately and tragically, a large percentage of our uh, indigenous people who we have that, who have that label based on the United Nations definition have 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 lost that worldview, uh, and many non-Indian people, put in quotes, uh, are are, re are regaining it. Uh, Navajo reservation. I've got uh, nine Navajo students getting their doctorate. All of them are writing dissertations that are challenging the loss of the worldview on their on their reservation, and and these are all fluent speakers. Uh, and, and how that's continuing. So, and, and Darsha brought up rightly the difference between that worldview that everyone owns. I mean, we have a world, right? And there's kind of two ways to see it, again, using Robert Redfield's uh, original work, but just in common sense. Nature knows how the world works, right? I mean, that's the nature knows, not humans. No human scientist can figure out it better than nature. So if, if, we, if, if the people that create a worldview create it based on deep uh, relationship with observing and living and participating and to survive in a world that is symbiotic and, and is about mutual aid and is about balance, then that worldview would seem to make sense as opposed to one where humans have separated themselves from nature. And that's a, kind of a commonsensical thing that I try to get I get across is that the indigenous worldview is simply looking at the way nature works based on how our ancestors, everybody's ancestors, if you go 9,000 years and before, uh, everyone lived in, in, in according to nature. If they were going to make a basket that uh, could hold water, they would go look at a squirrel's nest. I mean, the, the nature was our, was our teacher. Whereas place-based knowledge that's where we have to give our respect for indigenous cultures because everything's been taken away from indigenous people, the spirituality in, included. And now to take away a worldview by claiming it, even a number of my indigenous brothers and sisters say, well, I, I think that's going too far. But again, using fool's crow idea that no one owns the worldview. What is special is the distinction with place-based knowledge that you only can have if you speak the language fluently because Indigenous verb-based languages come from the earth. They talk about the earth. The, the, the origins of our Latin-based languages were human-oriented, social-oriented, and became noun-based and are much more concretized, right? So we support place-based knowledge, but neither Dorsha and I have that wisdom. We don't speak, we weren't, don't speak fluently. We weren't raised in an indigenous culture in one place over eons to know the flora and fauna. And so that's why we have to say we've got to protect indigenous rights and indigenous sovereignty efforts and, and stop the atrocities because 80% of the planet is on the 20% of land that indigenous people are maintaining, according to some big studies, right? Um, so we can still have that place-based knowledge, but that place-based knowledge has in common the worldview precepts, the 40 that we uh, that we, we have identified through the li literature and the 28 that we put in our, in our book. 
So I just want to emphasize real quick uh, the, the United Nations report, I think you kind of referred to there, that came out in 2019 that said, if we're going to survive as a species, we have to adopt this indigenous worldview. And that's real and true. And that gives real relevance to the work that you've done here in the book because, uh, you know, okay, well, what is that? Uh, what are we talking about? It really does because, you know, it's 50 countries, uh, uh, 450 multidisciplinary scientists, 15,000 peer-reviewed papers, and seven times in their treatise, they actually will say something as specific as, however, this is a direct quote, however, where indigenous worldview is operating and people have control of the land, this extinction rate is non-existent or severely reduced. I mean, when I saw that, I couldn't couldn't believe it. And of course, the article in The Nation that I wrote is called What the Media Missed because they were so shocked by pe people being told a million species more will go extinct in, in our lifetimes that they, that just, it was kind of taken off the map, right? But uh, that idea about worldview was also taken off the map, which was sad. How did you go about putting together the pieces that are in there? And can you mention uh, this beautiful table of contents is, as you say, the indigenous world precepts. Yes, yeah, so uh, Four Arrows had been, as he said earlier, working on indigenous worldview for some years and extracted all sorts of precepts, uh, 40 uh, typically, right? There's probably more that could be on the list, but uh, that's a great set. And so we looked at that and considered them and uh, mostly selected the ones we thought would be, um, we'd be able to find uh, quotes for. Sometimes we shifted or, or something and found a different uh, precept to use. But on average, we were able to look through the literature of quotes, of people's writing, of uh, interviews, uh, films even, uh, conversations, and find quotes that, that could go with a precept. And every once in a while, we'd, we'd come upon such a great quote that, that nailed one that we hadn't chose, right? I think we did one or, one or two like that. Yeah. You got to keep in mind that these, these worldview precepts are, are, are interdependent. Uh, so, you know, when we, when we talk about living with or without strong social purpose or anthropocentrism versus animism or more head than heart, um, uh, lacking empathy or, 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 or emphasizing it, you know, all of these things have a relationship to one another. They're all inter interconnected. Uh, and, uh, and so we really wanted to, to, to get across how passionate uh, these were to the, to the people who were really speaking about their place-based knowledge in ways that emphasized uh, you know, one of the world, one or more of the worldviews. And it's important to remember that trying to speak about a culture or a worldview or cosmology is really difficult to put it into words because you practice it, right? And people who study cultural uh, cultures uh, like Cluckhorn and others, you try to put, and I've tried this, but I've tried to make measures of, you know, how do you think about time, you know, and is it inside of you or outside of you? People don't think that way, right? Because they just live that way. And so you have to understand that the, 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 cosmo the, the 40 or the 28 precepts that we selected are just what we can put into words and there'll be more things too. So it's, uh, 
it's not always, you shouldn't consider it to be the thorough, <laughs> everything that's uh, true about the indigenous or kinship worldview. I mean, the state of the world right now, um, we're seeing the, uh, you know, tenets of civilization that are based on the disconnected dominator, dominant worldview. Um, it's falling apart because it wasn't sustainable to begin with. And I know that uh, <laughs> we've been doing, I've been doing this for a long time at Kindred, so it's not surprising to us <laughs> this is, that we're here and this is happening in one way. Um, but on the other hand, for, for people who are just coming, who are just maybe experiencing a break in the trance, uh, which is what mainstream media and a lot of the dominant uh, culture is about, is putting us into a, a state, a trance state that uh, keeps us disconnected and, and doubting ourselves. Uh, if we do have uh, moments of breakthrough, um, peak, peak experiences, you know, we'll just kind of wave that off. Um, but there is, there does seem to be an opportunity right now. Uh, people are curious. Well, this isn't working. This really isn't working because it's spectacularly falling apart right now. And what else is there? Um, can you, and you just said, Darsha, this is an experiential worldview. Um, can you speak to some of the pieces that you've touched on in, in the precepts and in your discussion in the book about how, how do we reclaim that and reconnect? and follow the rabbit trails, the hunches that might be coming up for us right now. Well, I'd like Darcy to start because I think the most important way, if we look at at least one or two generations, is with the first five years of life in prenatal. So Darcy, maybe if you could talk about that, then I can talk about sort of the top down. Sure. So the bottom up aspect of, of developing the kinship worldview is from our our experiences in early life in the womb when we're uh, at birth uh, in the perinatal period, the first years of life in particular, because the child is learning to connect or not disconnect uh, in, in the dominant worldview, we push children and babies away and then they don't develop their full selves. Uh, so in the, uh, the evolved nest though is about that connection, that embodied connection with the baby inside the womb, outside the womb, and being responsive and being right there and meeting their needs without resistance, without you know minimizing them. Uh, and then that child learns that they're here in this dynamic place and they are part of the world and it's safe and a good place to be. And these people are part of uh, my community and so is the natural world around me, the trees, the animals, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, all part of our community. And they learn that within the indigenous uh, evolved nest. And that's of course then gonna bring about this worldview that we're talking about. And I'd like that you, you mentioned the trance. I think trance connects to this because uh, you know, young young children can learn a whole bunch of languages, right? Whereas you, you get to be old like me, it's hard to, to learn a new language. Well, why is that? Well, the research shows that young children go into hypnosis very, very naturally, spontaneously. Uh, and of course, all of us do that during times of stress. During times of stress, all creatures become hypersuggestible to the uh, communication of a perceived trusted authority figure. 
for me, that hypothesis is the explanation for how we could be poisoning our air and our water. How could we do that as intelligent people? And there's a lot of intelligent people doing that if it had, didn't have something to do with a, a sort of mass hypnosis. But if we're looking at children in the first three years, you know, they, they can, they can uh, use the trance state uh, very easily, well then we've got to learn how to do that. And, and I believe, and, and this is an unusual uh, idea in the literature, that ceremony that has been practiced by indigenous people and their trance-based healing, which is pretty well known, uh, ceremony is, is a form of that trance-based learning. You have a, uh, an image that you, that you are focusing on while you're in a lower brainwave frequency, and, uh, and that becomes transformative. And I think that um, we can learn how to use self-hypnosis techniques, because all, ultimately all hypnosis is self-hypnosis, if you're aware. If we begin with metacognitive worldview reflection, that helps us understand, well, wait a minute, why, why am I continuing to do this? Why am I doing, you know, this action that part of me is saying was a wrong thing to do? Well, we stop and look at that, you know, it, it has something to do with fear and something we learned in early childhood that would defend us from that fearful object. It has something to do with the, uh, um, uh, the, the, the authority that, that idea came from. Uh, it, came, it comes from the words that we use when we talk to ourselves. And by looking metacognitively at four of the precepts, uh, which include those things that I said, fear, authority, words, and nature, and how different the dominant worldview treats those four things compared to the indigenous worldview, we can begin to go, ah, I see the source of that. And I can look at that critically. Maybe what dad or the Pope or the, the, the peddlard said wasn't really accurate. And maybe what I'm saying to myself isn't really accurate and I am I am continuing that in my in my behaviors and then you use some self-hypnosis to take what you see as as a better way to do it which is how we did it for 99% of human history and you use that imagery to begin to transform yourself I mean that's like a two-week course in, a, in, in, in about two minutes metacognition is thinking about what we think and why we think it Okay. And we don't we don't generally do that. We just don't really, really think about well, why am I afraid of this? What's the source of that? You know, and if there's no real reason, we know that you know, and you know, phobias and other kinds of things, we operate from fears for which are irrational. That's one of the definitions of of, of phobia. And so, um, what what is that? Well, we can take the worldview chart, and we can look at the continuum between one side and the other. And go wow. I, I see that that's I'm in that in, in that place and that's what I'm a, and, and so I need to move from a fear-based way of being in the world into courage and then beyond courage into a fearless trust in the universe or a fearless courage that means once we decide to take action once we initiate the decision that this is a better way we let go of the courage because now we trust the universe it's sort of like a new definition of hope that I have is it's not the expectation uh, that there's certainly going to be an outcome 
uh, it's the expectation that regardless of the outcome, what I'm doing is the right thing to do. And so we, we can get into habits uh, that are unconscious or subconscious and just do it over and over, but metacognition is pulling back and, and applying a practical wisdom uh, of uh, conscious uh, examination of your habits in, a sense, in essence. Thank you. Thank you for that, because what I was going toward was when I interviewed uh, Charles Eisenstein years ago <clears throat> about why are we not doing this? Why aren't we thinking about a context in our culture? And he said, you, normally it's you have to bottom out. That's the, uh, you know, the addict uh, trying to uh, use uh, substances or behaviors to stay in this, um, uh, Rian Eisler calls our, our dominant culture a trauma factory, so, and Gabor Matei speaks to this as well in his work. What do we do to make it work and make it work? These are then called addictions. They're just faulty coping mechanisms. Uh, and why aren't we questioning why does this trauma factory exist and why am I in it to begin with? And Charles Eisenstein says that you, most people have to bottom out in their personal individual lives in some way that causes them to say, wow, this really doesn't work. I'm going to have to think about this now and, uh, and figure out something else to do. So the metacognition piece, I, I like, you can tell I like language. I like having words for things so we can then talk. Now we know what we're talking about. So the metacognition is the, uh, you know, the conscious thinking uh, recognition of context. And then Darsha, you recently wrote about this uh, oneness experience being a normal part of who we are. Uh, so that's different. Do you want to speak to that for a moment? Uh, sure. So that sense of uh, the kind of what you mentioned earlier, peak experiences, right, of, of feeling at one with the universe, that's where you lose your sense of, of the unique self. Often it's you just kind of blur into the beauty of the earth. Uh, and that's something that we a child, hopefully a baby, has been able to fall asleep in the arms of the of the caregiver, of the mother, the father, grandmother, grandfather, uh, and and feel that to feel one with the person that's carrying you around all day, uh, and and the brain then the they're they're oriented to learning that the ceremonies that uh, our um, native peoples practice also do this where you get into drumming and dancing and singing together you just lose who you are and join this group uh, of uh, ecstatic experience now it's possible to have this sense of oneness too in the other direction to downshift into a negative you know we're us against them kind of thing uh, so that's a danger that um, unfortunately when you're not nested your system is probably going to uh, push you more in that direction than if you have been nested because you didn't practice those negative um, and that negative neurobiology, the stress response, for example. I could say more, but <laughs> well, let's just take one ex one example from our worldview chart. Let's let's take yeah. uh, uh, the the one number twelve is words used to deceive self or other is generally what's happening in the dominant worldview and. And we can see that in almost all the institutions that we have. Uh, some some people say we're in a post-truth world. Um, and uh, uh, otherwise, we look at truth as multifaceted and accepting the mysterious. But um, we understand by our languaging 
what is coming closest to the truth, okay? So let's just take a, a, if somebody is, let's say, clinically obese and wants to change that, and they go to a psycho, psychotherapist who uh, is, is, is interested in what their words are, and he says, uh, uh, or she says to the, to the client, what do you say when you look, say, naked in, in the mirror? What do you say to you, uh, what do you see? And what do you say to yourself about what you see? And the person says, well, I, I see I'm a fat person. Well, you could take and say, well, remember, our, my therapy here is going to be talking about words and, and, and how accurate that they are describing reality. Uh, wouldn't you be like in a jar of in a jar if you were fat? Uh, can you do better on that? And then with a little bit of practice, they pretty soon say, ah, I see a beautiful person who happens to have more adipose tissue than is, is healthy and that I want. Well, from that, you can begin to, to work. I remember I had somebody from San Francisco, uh, an executive who called me to come in for clinical hypnosis when I was teaching hypnosis at UC Berkeley. And uh, I asked what the presenting problem was. He said, look, every time I go to a meeting, I sweat profusely under my arms. I've got like seven sports jackets in my office. So I said, okay, we'll make an appointment. I, but I, what do you say to yourself right before you go into that office meeting? And he said, I don't know. What do you mean? I said, well, what, what do you say to yourself? Well, I, I don't know. I look at my clock and I say, uh, uh, it, I have to go to this meeting. I said, okay. I said, well, I'll see you uh, next Wednesday at such and such time. But in the meantime, just do, do one thing for me. The next time when you look at your watch, don't say, I have to be at the meeting. Say, I want to be at the meeting. And I had the guy call me up and cancel the meeting. And he said, you must have hypnotized me on the phone because I haven't sweat in four, in four meetings, right? So the power of words, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Kipling said that word kind, word, words are mankind's most powerful drug. Well, that's, that's being used that way, but uh, that's just one worldview thing. Indigenous worldviews uh, are based on uh, a languaging that's verb-based. It's, you can't just say that's an oak tree. You have to know what time of year it is, whether there's a bird living in it, etc. And it's, it's much harder to concretize. So we have to work at, the, at this because words are hypnotizing when we are in stress. Okay? And that's, you know, again, my, that definition uh, uh, is in, in, that during times of stress, people are hypersuggestible to the communication of a perceived trusted authority figure. And in, in emergency medicine, you know, uh, I have a book on this that you can come up to somebody in a car accident and you can't open the door and they're bleeding and you can speak with authority and say, my name is, uh, is Darsha Narvaez, Dr. Darsha Narvaez. Things are being made ready for you at the hospital. The worst is over, but you're hemorrhaging and I want you to go ahead and stop that because I can't open this door. One, two, three. I want to count to three. And when you I get to three, you stop your bleeding. 80% of the time, the bleeding will, the, for the autonomic nervous system will be controlled by that person's self-hypnotic ability, right? So that's just one. And I, we could do this with each of these, these worldview ideas, you know, do, whether it be dualistic thinking or, or belief in, uh, disbelief in, uh, uh, in spiritual energy or rigid boundaries or materialism. Each one of these, you can go through a process like that to realize why we're in the mess that we're in. 
it's very beautiful, the book and the language and uh, the feeling that I'm taking away from it when I read these sections. I just want to really encourage our listeners to, to buy the book and to uh, make time to really sit with it. Sit with, a, again, a lot of the language like Warriors is pointing out. This is a different worldview that you're putting forward here in, in the language, which I, I hear what you say, Krishnamurti has said, you know, you teach a child the word bird, that the child doesn't see the bird anymore. The child is hearing the word bird in his head now. <laughs> so you want to say something to that? Uh, four arrows. You were leaning forward like you were going to say something to that. I just wanted to. No, I just am. I'm just oh, okay. <laughs> True, that is. Yes, it's like you know. It's it's. That's why you know the words for the for a, a you know the the creative energy of of the world in almost every language that I've studied, indigenous language, is translated as the great mysterious thing. It's not even. Uh, uh, mysterious it's in process it's a verb right the great mysterious thing and so this reliance on words uh you know is 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 problematic and uh, and that's why observing and being into nature is such an important important con concept and construct um uh so yeah i, I agree uh, with you the dominant worldview is based in a in our deliberative ego consciousness. That's what we emphasize. Uh, we think that's what it means to be human is to reason, right, and to have will. Uh, that's a Western idea from the so-called enlightenment. Uh, that's a quite opposite or or unintegrated way of being. Uh, that really a lot of the major religions call dangerous intellect. Because uh, if you stay in that mode, you start to think that's all you are as a thinker, right? An ego-oriented thinker. Um, whereas the indigenous worldview encompasses the integrated brain, the holistic way of being in a dynamic universe and being fearless about it. Uh, of course, there are moments of fear, but in general, you're fearless. You're aware that things are shifting all the time. You're shifting. There's no solid identity where you label things and that's it. <laughs> you know, it's a little category. That's not the way the world is. Everything is shifting all the time. Each of us, the tree, <laughs> the animals, everything uh, that's happening. And you build the capacity to be in that kind of world, uh, to be aware of that from the evolved nest. That's where we bring it all together, right? Is you're fostering the dynamism of being a human being when the evolved nest is there and the indigenous or kinship worldview we're talking about is what results. So Kindred, we're just starting to uh, have, we used to have more holistic pieces on there and we really uh, stopped doing that because people were confused um, they were, you know, wanted to, as you were saying, four arrows, do the binary thinking of, oh, if you're speaking holistically, then you've thrown out, uh, you know, anything that has to do with, for example, health, then you're not going to, then you're anti-Western medicine. And that's not true. That's not what we're talking about here. But what, what we're talking about for the purposes of this indigenous worldview and integration of our right and left brain um, uh, uh, is is working with the other intelligences here on our planet, like we used to, like our our parents and grandparents, my grandmothers, 
uh, were farmers and uh, you know lived in uh, log cabins. Uh, my grandmother, uh, my paternal grandmother, lived in a log cabin most of her life until she married my grandfather. And their orientation, the way they were as beings, I could see they knew when they were they were thinking. My grandmother would switch into her thinking brain. She'd say, well, let me study on that for a minute <laughs> because she's used to being outside and plugged in. And she knew when she was going to have to use this other part of her brain to think about things and study on them. Um, but I, I could see their orientation to working with intelligences uh, even as Baptist, by the way, uh, were was it was just experiential, and and I like uh, I love this aspect of your book when you're you have a lot of pieces in here about the elements in nature and the the intelligences that are waiting for us. I don't think we're going to turn this corner as a species um, by ourselves. I it, I think we're going to need a lot of help. So could you just speak for a moment? I know we're almost to the end of our time about all, all that's waiting for us in, in this other world view to help us heal and uh, to, to move forward as, as more of a, even a Gaia um, consciousness. Uh, well, Howard, Howard Gardner has uh, multiple intelligences are a good place maybe to end it in, in the sense that uh, he wanted to add an eighth intelligence and that was a spiritual intelligence. It didn't meet the criteria, but he, he actually has talked about wanting to add it. But not meeting the criteria, that's a whole other story, right? Uh, and he also talked about a moral intelligence that should be in there, but that also doesn't meet the intelligence, you know, Darsha's field. Um, I think this idea of spirituality, this idea of us being spirits inhabiting a, a body, we don't talk too much about that in the academy. I think this idea of... Uh, I had Dr. Uh, David Cheek, who uh, was, did the forward for my, uh, uh, Prentice Hall's uh, book on emergency hypnosis. He uh, was ostracized by the medical community. He was an obstetrician and head of the, of the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. But when he did his re regressions, he wanted to see if what direction the baby, when being born, was facing, right or left, because he had the records of 140 people that he had over 40 years given birth to. So he thought, well, you're not supposed to remember that that moment of, of birth, but let me see if people can move their head, and I'll see. Well, he, he did it, and there was a statistically significant number of people that got it right. But a few people were talking about, well, we haven't, we haven't been conceived yet. We're trying to decide whether this is the parent we want. Well, that went into his, his article and he was ostracized. You know, so this is hypnotic, hypnotic regression. Yeah, so because he was he went to his 40 year old patient, you know, 40 year old people that that he had 40 years previously given birth to. Right. And he and he brought them into the office and uh, and, and did a, did hypnosis regression and um, uh, and, you know, and so, so I'm just offering one little kind of uh, anecdote, which isn't really solid evidence, but, uh, you can go to the university of Virginia and look at Ian Stevenson's work on this to see good scholarship, but there's, there's no way of knowing, but if we do understand that we are spirits inhabiting a body, it changes everything. It changes, it changes our, our fear base. It changes our way we relate. 
to uh, to others. It 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 allows us to get into the understanding of, that we say in Lakota Metakoyoyasi, which means we're all related, and uh, and and I think that if there's anything to get from this book, it's it's a it's it's an eloquent way of understanding that uh, that we are interconnected and that we are a part of the natural world, that the animal, not the four-legged, the two-legged, the swimmers, the crawlers, the rooted ones, are our teachers, and that we are spirit. And, and, and someone's going to have to rebuild the catastrophe that, that is likely to be in front of us. And if we have this attitude, going back to my definition of hope as being the certainty that what we're doing is the right thing to do regardless of the outcome, I believe that we, instead of thinking about what's happening in, in, in terribly today, uh, that instead of thinking about, well, should we bring a no-take zone? Should we do weapons? Should we do what, what? Let's all go up to a place and, and pray. And let's all go to a place and cry and all hug each other. And let's all talk about, you know, I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm not going to be on this plane for long, but I'm not going to leave with the actions of a worldview that is completely insane. And that's what I hope our book will, will give us. Yes, thank you so much. Arsha, what else would you like for us to know about this book? Well, I think uh, Four Arrows said it so eloquently. I don't, I don't think I can top it. It's just so important to understand that who we are and what we think our baselines for what's a normal human being and how to act and what to expect of others. All that's mess has been messed up because we forgot the evolved nest and then we get tranced into a trauma-informed or trauma-inducing pathway and way of being. And we forget that we have other capacities. We are amazing creatures. We developed all sorts of wondrous things uh, through our evolution and so did all the other animals and plants, right? They all have their intelligences that we need to respect and honor. And I think our, we have to remember and draw back into our bodies to love our bodies and to love those around us. However it is that we can do that, wherever we are, you know, we have the 28 days of uh, eco-attachment dance. Just get back into the natural world and pay attention, right? And, and slowly get out of that uh, kind of isolation that we feel that we were forced into in, in many cases uh, to get back to the heart-centeredness, our, our sense of being always connected, our, our whole body sense of that. And don't get worried about the future. Don't get uh, anxious about the past just uh, or depressed about it. We are here now. Be in this moment with whomever you meet. If it's a spider, say hello. If it's an oak tree you walk by, acknowledge them, listen, pay attention, and be an earth creature. You know, I think, Darcy, if I may, what you said uh, about remembering how beautiful we are, how amazing we are, I think when people read these 28 quotes that we've selected, if anything, if I could, if I could use anything to describe a common theme of all of them, I think each one is a, is a reminder of how amazing we are. Yes, that is really it. That is the new story. That's 
what we've been pointing to here at Kindred for a long time. And I have witnessed, and I, you know, I, I know that we can go into the place of talking about the big picture that's happening out there right now that's fed to us about how scary and awful things are. But there are plenty of people that I have met on my path individually who are listening. They're listening to themselves. They're listening to life force that is uh, really inspiring them to be wayfinders, trance breakers, as we call them, and, uh, and new cycle makers. <laughs> and, uh, and so they're there, and I, I encourage everyone to find them. And I also want to say we have this fantastic resource on the Kindred website, Four Arrows um, Worldview Chart, that helps us to see. It is a binary tool, as he's saying, but it is uh, a nice tool to help us see the, the dominant worldview and the indigenous worldview uh, manifest. Uh, so are you going to play us out? I, I am going to, just like a movie, we can just, everybody can just That'd be great. And I'm, this is a this is a, an appropriate song. It's a melody that the Cherokee women, uh, the mothers who were still alive, but their aunts or sisters or daughters, but who sang a lullaby to the babies, to the infants. And in the lullaby on this horrendous trail of tears, uh, which most people will know about, the lullaby said things like, but did you see the animals in the clouds? Did you see the dancing prairie grasses? Did you see the beautiful colors of the fish when we walked through the brook? Did you hear the wonderful songs of the mockingbird, etc.? right? So have your, your, your listeners just kind of close their eyes, go into a place where they know that they can learn the truth about the world and listen to the courage and beauty of mother singing a song uh, with such lyrics in such a uh, existential time more probably so than what we're suffering now you so much thank you so much for taking us out on that note thank you so much for this beautiful gem of a book i uh, i um i'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like for the listeners to, uh, to know before we go and where to find you i know we have evolvednest.org there's a self-directed learning center there that you can explore the components of the evolved nest um, if you're listening to this uh someplace and you can't see uh, where you are, you can find us at kindredmedia.org. Both Darsha and Four Arrows' work is there, along with that um, wonderful Indigenous worldview chart. And Four Arrows, where else would you like people to find you out in the virtual world? Well, my wife put a website together, fourarrowsbooks.com, that I never tout because I always forget. So fourarrowsbooks.com. Uh, we'll, we'll, and there's a lot of, just put in uh, Four Arrows Worldview on Google and and uh, a lot of my presentations will 
will come up to help help uh, understand this idea of, of world. All right. Thank you both so much. Thank Bye you. Now.